0: Good morning. Our second reading is from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 33. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near so also when you see these things taking place you know that the kingdom of god is near truly i say to you this generation will not pass away until all has taken place heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away
1: good morning jesmond parish church It is a great joy for me to be with you once again. Last 15 years, I've been with you in person in November, but this year, of course, is 2020 COVID, and uh, I'm not able to be with you, but I am with you in spirit. And it is my great joy to be able to open God's Word and share with you from the Word of God this morning. This morning, we're going to continue our theme in keeping the end in sight. And we're going to have a look at the passage, Acts chapter 1. You may want to turn to that in your Bibles, Acts chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 1 to 11. And in this passage, uh, when I read, you'll notice that, uh, that uh, Luke links the, the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ with the teaching of the New Testament on the kingdom of God. So he links those two things the ascension of Christ, the return of Christ, and the kingdom of God. So let me read the passage, pray, and then we'll dig into God's word. Acts chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, Father, we thank you again for this wonderful opportunity to be meeting together around your word. And we pray that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, may open our eyes, may take away the hardness from our hearts, and above all may draw us closer to Christ. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. The key verse in this passage must be verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the author of the book of Acts is Luke, and Luke is writing about the 40 days between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. So the question is, what was Jesus doing in those 40 days, almost six weeks? The answer is, he was appearing to his disciples physically, bodily, objectively, and he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. So what we have in these these 11 verses is almost a summary, it's almost a masterclass in what Jesus taught and what the New Testament taught about the kingdom of God. So I want you to notice four things about the kingdom of God that we find in this passage. The first thing that we notice is that the kingdom of God is historical. So notice chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes, and he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, we know that the author of the book of Acts was Luke. In fact, he was Dr. Luke. But he was also the author of the gospel, the gospel of Luke. So actually, Luke gave us two volumes. Volume one was the gospel of Luke. Volume two was the book of Acts. And what Luke is committed to is to giving us the historical details of the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. And in actual actual fact, in Luke chapter one, verse one, you may want to turn to that Luke chapter one, verse one to four. Luke tells us what his historical research methodology was. What methodology did he use in these two volumes? So have a look quickly at Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. And what I want you you to notice is that uh, Luke had a very clear research methodology. Notice there in verse 1, he tells us that there were historical events, What what we find here is a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Those are events. Secondly, we notice that there were eyewitnesses, verse 2. So Luke talks about eyewitnesses who had heard and seen those historical events. He then talks about careful research, verse 3a. He said here that he followed closely. He researched carefully what the eyewitnesses heard and saw. And then verse 3b, he tells us step four in his methodology, which was then to carefully write down what he had researched. And then the last step is in verse four, where he prepares his documents for his readers. That's us. Of course, the first reader was Theophilus, and uh, he writes, "...so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." So what Luke wants us to understand is that the basis of the Christian faith is the historical person of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The basis of our faith is not some philosophical teaching. It's not like the teaching you have by Plato or, or Marx or Freud. It's not based upon some spiritual experience or some mystical experience. It's not based upon some secret knowledge that you have to find or discover. No, the roots of Christianity is based upon the historical person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us yeah, he did the research, he did the work, so that what we are reading here are the words, the actions of the person of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us what Jesus began to do. And then in the book of Acts, he tells us what Jesus continues to do through his spirit and the apostles. I don't know about you, but I'm normally in the wrong place at the wrong time. Have you ever discovered that? I'm sure we all have. You see, chances are that if I'd lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine... Chances are I would have seen God. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. He appeared on the human stage in the flesh. He appeared historically, objectively. The basis of our faith is not some philosophy, not some vague thinking, not some experience. No, the basis of our faith is the historical person of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in particular, his resurrection. And so Luke makes it quite clear, both in his gospel and here in the book of Acts, he talks about this Jesus who suffered, verse 3, and then by many proofs appeared to them during 40 days. The basis of our faith is historical. Christianity is true, whether you believe it or not. It's not based upon your faith. It's like the Second World War. It's like the Holocaust. Whether you believe it or not is irrelevant, actually. It happened. It happened objectively. It happened historically, whether you believe it or not. So it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true. It happened, whether you believe it or not. Have you ever wondered why, why, why the, uh, the history of the world is divided between B.C. and A.D.? Ever wondered why? It's because of one man called, called Jesus jesus who died and whom god supernaturally raised from the dead do you think there would have been any remembrance of jesus if his death had been the end my dear friends thousands of people tens of thousands of people were crucified during the roman empire there would have been no remembrance of jesus if his death on the cross had been the end no god supernaturally raised him from the dead historically objectively Second thing we learn about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is supernatural. So it's not only historical, it is supernatural. Notice there verse three, Luke talks about the death and the resurrection of Christ. That is supernatural. Verse eight, he talks about the Holy spirit. Well, that's supernatural. Verse nine, we have a description of the ascension of Christ, the physical, bodily, historical ascension of Christ into heaven. Verse 10, we meet two angels, two men, dressed in white robes. The Bible is unashamed about miracles and the supernatural. So God operates both in the natural and the supernatural. Well, that's obvious. It's logical. It's not unreasonable. If he is the God of the universe, if he is the God of the universe and creation, if he created all things, well, surely, surely, Surely he can act in both the natural and the supernatural. That is the God of the Bible. And the Bible is not ashamed about supernatural events, because what we have here is the ascension of Christ. He bodily, physically ascends into heaven. My dear friends, that is supernatural. In front of their eyes, they saw it. They gazed into the sky as he disappeared into the clouds. That's a miracle. Now, let me suggest that some of you here, either watching, well, you are watching, you're all watching, uh, some of you may, may have problems with the supernatural. You may have problems with things like Moses parting the Red Sea. You may have problems with the virgin birth of Christ. You may have problems with, with Jesus walking on water. You may have problems with Jesus feeding the you may, may you, you may have problems with the resurrection or the ascension. Let me suggest that your problem actually is not with miracles. Your problem is with your doctrine of God. You see, if you have a small God, if you have a pathetic God, well, obviously, he can't do those things. They're supernatural. But if you have the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who created all things, the one who created the laws of nature, well, surely... Surely that same God can act outside of the laws of nature which he created for his own purposes. That is not illogical. That is not unreasonable. The Bible makes no apology about the supernatural nature of the kingdom of God. God acts both in the natural world and in the supernatural world. The third thing we notice here. Is that the kingdom of God is not only historical, it is not only supernatural, but the kingdom of God is eschatological. Now, that comes from the Greek word eschatos, eschatological. It means the last things. The word eschatological includes the concepts of the return of Christ, of the ending of human history as we know it, of the final judgment. Of the new heaven and the new earth. That falls under the word eschatology. And what we have here. Is a clear teaching. A clear indication. Of the eschatological nature. Of the kingdom of God. So notice there verse 10. It couldn't be more obvious. Verse 9. And when he had said these things. As they were looking on. He was lifted up. And a cloud took him him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here we have the physical ascension of Christ. Ascending into heaven. And right now, the same Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God means that he has authority. And here the angels teach, as is taught in the rest of the scriptures, that the same Christ will return. And when he returns, he will bring human history to an end. When he returns, he will usher in the final judgment. When he returns, he will usher in the final heaven and the final earth, the new heaven and the new earth. So we are, we are taught here that the kingdom of God is not only something that happened in the past. It's something that happens in the future. Christ will return. And when he returns, it will be the end of human history as we know it. So my dear friends, we live in a world which doesn't believe that. Our secular world will argue that there's no beginning, there's no end. Or, as Henry Ford famously said, uh, probably about 100 years ago, he said, Life history. He said, History is just one damn thing after the other. Forgive my language. But that is the thinking of most people. It's just one damn thing after the other. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says, no, there's a beginning Genesis chapter 1, there's an end, Revelation 22. God has bookends. To this world, to human history, God created all things and God will bring all things in this world as we know it to an end and usher in a new heaven and a new earth after he has brought about the final judgment preceded by the return of Christ. So what we have here in embryonic form in those two, three verses is a very clear indication of the end times. There is an end. There is a return of Christ. There is a judgment. There is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided. There is a new heaven and a new earth prepared for those who have submitted to this king, King Jesus. Let me just say that one of the most most important doctrines in the Bible is the doctrine of judgment. Now, I'm well aware that the doctrine of judgment, the teachings of heaven and hell are enormously unpopular in our culture and especially your culture. People hate the concept of judgment. They hate the concept that there's someone who holds us accountable. And yet the Bible makes it quite clear that there will come a day when God, when Christ will return and God will usher in a day of judgment and he will hold us accountable. Now let me tell you why that is such an important doctrine. It's important because it gives us a basis to forgive other people. You see, we as Christians do not have the right to live with bitterness or anger. We have not we 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 we, we do not have the right to take revenge. No. God calls on us to forgive. That is the that is the nat- nature, that is the attribute of a Christian. And the reason we can forgive people is not because we are soft on justice. No, we know that one day true justice will be done because God will see that all all injustices are righted and put right. So on that basis, we can forgive, we can live at peace. We can ask God to take away the hatred or the anger or the bitterness. Why? Because we know that one day there will be a day of true justice. The second reason why it's important is it gives us meaning and purpose in life. We know that God will hold us accountable for how we have lived. There's a beginning and there's an end. And that gives meaning. That gives purpose. There's a reason why we are here. And we are here to serve the king and to extend his kingdom. Lastly, will you notice, the kingdom of God is historical, it's supernatural, it's eschatological and the kingdom of God is personal. Pick that up in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we need to remember that what we have here is the teaching of Jesus to the disciples. And the disciples had to live through the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. They had to wait for Pentecost Pentecost was was when Christ sent down His Spirit onto His people so that His kingdom would be extended throughout the earth. They had to wait for the event of the resurrection, of the ascension of Pentecost. And He said, at Pentecost, you will receive the Holy Spirit. We, however, live after Pentecost. We receive the Holy Spirit when we are born again. We receive the Holy Spirit when God invades our lives and causes us to become citizens of his kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God is personal. When you become a Christian, which is when you receive the Holy Spirit, you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit, when you are born again, God invades your life. He changes your heart. He changes your mind. He changes your values. He changes your likes and your dislikes. He revolutionizes your life. That is personal. That is absolutely personal. So the kingdom of God is not only historical. The kingdom of God is not only eschatological, the past and the future. The kingdom of God is now. It's existential. It's personal. You receive the Holy Spirit when you put your faith and trust in Christ. And he changes your life. And he gives you new a new heart. He gives you new eyes. He gives you new ears. Let me close. Time is gone. There is no kingdom. There's no kingdom without a king. There's no kingdom without a king. Becoming a Christian is becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what happens when you become a Christian, when the Holy Spirit invades your life. And you become a citizen of the kingdom when you submit to the king, King Jesus. If you've never submitted to him, if you've never bowed the knee to King Jesus, wouldn't today be a good day when you finally stop ducking and diving? You finally stop making excuses And you submit to King Jesus like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Won't you do that today? Isn't today a good day to actually get right with King Jesus and become a citizen of his kingdom? Well, let's pray. Father, there may be someone here this morning who has felt your spirit pressing in upon their heart and their mind and they know that today's the day they need to get right with God. Today's the day they need to repent and trust in Christ as King. Today's the day they need to submit to King Jesus. And so, Father, will you help them to call on you and say, Oh God... I don't understand it all. But I know that Christ died, King Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a citizen of your kingdom? And will you be my king? And Father, we thank you that when we turn to you, with all our questions and doubts, but we call upon you for mercy that you hear and you answer. And so, Lord, work amongst us today, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.